1: In the early 1800s, a gentleman inventor in London created what some consider to be the world's first computer, made out of metal gears. His name? Charles Babbage. He is the show's namesake, and he died 150 years ago this week. But who was he, and does he really deserve the accolade? Hello, and welcome to Babbage on Babbage, from The Economist, our weekly podcast on technology and science, I'm Kenneth Kukie, a senior editor, and in today's show, we're going to find out about Charles Babbage's inventions and legacy. We'll learn about his friend and champion, Ada Lovelace, and we'll consider whether Babbage's impact has been overrated, and explore the future of computing. The Babbage story is incredible and offers important lessons to all innovators today. And to understand why, we went on a pilgrimage a few miles from the Economist's offices in London. Excuse us, we're looking for a quiet place to record. (laughs) This was quiet. Here we are at Babbage's townhouse in Marlebone. Well, not quite his townhouse because the original structure is not here. It's now a bunch of luxury flats, but there's a blue plaque on it that identifies it as his former townhouse. And it's where he would host these incredible soirees that had the good and great of Victorian Britain there. Mathematicians rubbing shoulders with artists and with doctors and admirals. But before we talk about that, let's go to the science museum in London that has actual pieces of the difference engine and the analytical engine, the mechanical machines that he was building back then in the mid-1800s that seem to be the precursors of the modern computer. Let's take the tube across central London. Our guide at the Science Museum was Dr. Dr. Rachel Rachel Boone.
2: And I'm a curator of computing at the Science Museum in London.
1: And if today's show is a Babbage pilgrimage, we met her in front of the very holiest of relics.
2: What are we looking at? Well, we're looking at the only surviving part of Charles Babbage's Difference Engine number one.
1: I'm looking at a lot of gears made out of what looks to be brass, and it doesn't seem to, and numbers on the side, a cog, and a hand crank. It looks really very much like the 19th century, mid-19th century. And I do wonder if this was before you know, advanced manufacturing, if all of these gears were actually made by hand. And they wouldn't have been pressed were they fine-tooled by individuals in a factory.
2: Yeah, so we're actually looking at one of the most celebrated icons in the pre-history of computing. Charles Babbage was a pioneer in the ideas behind computing. And although he was full of ideas, there's actually very little physical material left of all of his innovation and ideas. So that's why it's really exciting that we're standing next to this, the only surviving part of his Difference
1: Engine Number 1. So let me ask a very prosaic question. What does it do?
2: So, in 1821, Charles Babbage was looking through tables of mathematical equations and polynomials, and he was looking through these tables with his friend Herschel, who's a famed astronomer, and he just kept on finding loads of errors and mistakes. And this was a endemic problem in that period, where tables of equations were really important to engineers, to mathematicians, even within financial services, and there were just loads of errors. And those errors were coming out of the fact that computers at that time were people. So Babbage saw that as a real problem and decided that he wanted to come up with a mechanical solution to print these tables and remove all of the human error.
1: Having seen this surviving part of Babbage's Difference Engine Number One, Dr. Boone then took us upstairs to see something even more impressive. Looks really interesting. What is this?
2: So this is the Difference Engine Number Two, which was a much more simplified design to his Difference Engine Number One, and did require less parts and was more efficient. Based on Charles Babbage's designs and never built in his lifetime, the Science Museum spent a long time building this machine, which really proved that if it had been built, it would have been successful.
1: This is incredible. It's a giant and intricate machine made of steel and brass cogs and gears. There are around 15 vertical rods holding scores of disks that have numbers on them, zero to nine. It's like a piece of workout equipment for robots. The Difference Engine number 1 was only a part of the machine, but here, the Difference Engine number 2, is the fully built machine. Now, the machines were financed by the British government. They were designed to solve calculations at the time, when the only other way to do them was through pencil, paper, and mind. Though never fully completed in Babbage's lifetime, to the chagrin of the British government, it's a testament to Babbage's genius that the designs worked in practice. But, as Dr. Boone told us, it's also a machine that could only realistically have been built in the modern era. There are just so many precisely tooled parts.
2: Yeah, so at the time when Babbage was designing his machines and Joseph Clement and other engineers were trying to bring them into reality, really was at that turning point between artisan engineering practice and mass production. So it kind of fell in the middle and that's where a lot of the money and the time went into trying to make these pieces as precise as possible.
1: The person who oversaw the construction of the Difference Engine Number 2 is Doran Swade, a museum curator and author. He led the 17-year-long project and gave us what can only be described as a glowing review of Babbage's designs.
3: It worked absolutely as intended. There are no logical alterations to the 8,000 parts, the 5 tons of machinery, it's 11 foot long, 7 foot high. It operates exactly as Babbage intended. That's not to say there wasn't design stuff we needed to do. There was only one part that had to be redesigned and it fits in the same space that Babbage allowed and it's a thing to reduce friction when something slides. It's not a logical issue. In logical terms, the machine worked exactly as Babbage had intended.
1: There's something almost da Vinci-esque about this. Visionary designs waiting for technology to catch up with them. And like da Vinci, Babbage was responsible for a range of other colorful inventions, including a locomotive cowcatcher, an automaton for playing knots and crosses, or tic-tac-toe for our American listeners, and a device for looking into the interior of the human eye. As Sui told me, they were the product of a restless and, at times, abrasive intellect.
3: He was proud. He was um, impatient. He was a perfectionist, and a lot of the perfection was not necessary to get working machines. He was irascible. He was hugely principled and uh, thought that being right entitled him to be rude. So, he alienated a lot of people that actually whose support he needed. So, he was a difficult character, you know, purportedly a genius, difficult to deal with. He was utterly charming, a wonderful raconteur. He was a prized dinner guest at society dinners because he was such a wonderful storyteller and had such a rich, live, inventive in- imagination.
1: At just such a soiree, Babbage met Ada Lovelace a precocious young mathematician and writer, then in her late teens. Lovelace had quite a pedigree. She was the daughter of the poet Lord Byron, mad, bad, and dangerous to know, who had died when she was eight, and had been brought up largely by her mother, the mathematician Lady Byron. She came to play a crucial collaborative role with Babbage, so much so that she's now seen as the mother, or perhaps grandmother, of computer software programming. I asked Professor Patricia Farah, a historian of science at Cambridge University and an expert on Lovelace, to explain how these two unlikely colleagues came together.
4: Ada Lovelace, from a very young age, was forced to study maths and scientific subjects, but she did seem to have naturally, uh, quite a high aptitude for them. And she became very interested in mathematics. And she was a very independent-minded young woman. And she definitely didn't want to conform to how Victorian young women
1: should behave. So Babbage must have noticed that she, unlike all the other guests, got it.
4: I I think, yes, she got it, but also it was extremely useful for Babbage to have someone who was very intelligent, but who also was aristocratic and could act as a patron for him. So I think it was a mutually advantageous relationship. She got to indulge in her intellectual activities and her interests and to write papers and things like that. He also taught her a lot about computers. But from his perspective, he had the advantage of someone who was socially well-placed who could protect him and promote him.
1: How did she protect him and promote him?
4: In particular, he asked her to translate a scientific paper that had been written by a mathematician in italy called luigia menabrea who was the future prime minister of italy and babbage had been to italy and he talked about his inventions and menabrea had written a paper babbage asked lovelace to translate this paper. Now, it's unclear whether he really needed it to be translated or whether he was gratifying her pride by giving her something intellectual to do. But the notable result of that was not only that she translated the paper, but also she provided a very, very long introductory commentary. And it's in that commentary that she is said
1: to have written the first computer program. Now... In that paper, she often refers to the idea that she believes, as the humble translator, that there is an element to the machine that's being built that the designer himself is not fully aware of. She's, in effect, criticizing Babbage. Tell me more about this.
4: Well, she was a very visionary young woman, and I think rather more than Babbage. She envisaged the exciting possibilities that a computer might possibly open up. So she imagined that a computer might be able to write music or to write poetry, whereas Babbage was very much concerned with churning out numbers. He was very interested in statistics. He was fascinated by logarithm tables. And from his point of view, he wanted a machine that would generate lots and lots and lots of tables without any numerical errors in them. So they had slightly different interests, slightly different vantage points about the possibilities that a computer held out.
1: The design that best captures this collaboration between Lovelace and Babbage is also the one that earned them a place in the computing hall of fame, the analytical engine. It's a dazzlingly ambitious machine which, while never fully built, promised to open up a universe of possibilities. And back at the Science Museum, Dr. Boone had led us to a display cabinet that contained a portion of the analytical engine. If the difference engines look bafflingly complex, this much smaller machine is equally perplexing. I, I, it's absolutely incredible. I'm totally still, I'm, I'm, I'm speechless because I have no idea what I'm looking at.
2: <laughs> yeah, it, it's, a, it's a bit of a bamboozling um, object that's in front of us. So a bit like the difference engine number one that we've just looked at downstairs. It's made out of brass, it's made out of wood, but it's still quite an opaque object. But this is actually the only piece of the analytical engine ever made, which was Babbage's more ambitious and technically more demanding machine. Again, it is only one piece of only a fraction of the whole machine as Babbage designed it. And unlike the Difference Engine, it would have been even bigger if it had been constructed. And whereas the Difference Engine could be operated by turning a handle, this machine would have required to be powered by steam. So it really is kind of a, a piece of technological history that really captures the spirit of the age, this idea of steam power being the power generation
1: of the future. This is great. Instead of cyberpunk, it's the original steampunk.
2: That is a brilliant way of putting it.
1: (laughs) And if the hand-crank-powered difference engines are the ancestors of the pocket calculators of today, this steampunk masterpiece is closer to what we think of as a general-purpose computer, thanks in part to a novel way of inputting instructions. I
3: asked Doran Sway to explain why. It was programmable using punched cards, you could give it a series of instructions which you would perform. It was capable of decision-taking, of branching, conditional branching, that is to say it could take one course of action depending on the result of the previous calculation or another depending on a, a different result. So you could branch it through, if you like, a tree, a, a decision-taking tree, and the outcomes of course are therefore uh, unpredictable, in principle predictable but in practice not. So the analytical engine is the transition from calculating from a calculator to a computer. What's astonishing about the analytical engine, these are huge machines. Uh, These are monstrous machines. In logical complexity and physical size, they were unprecedented. An entry-level analytical engine would consist of an estimated 50,000 parts and weighed over 10 tons. These are huge, huge machines. What's extraordinary about the analytical engine is that it incorporates almost every logical principle of a modern digital electronic computer, which is utterly phenomenal because the medium that Babbage was working in was, of course, mechanics, cogs, levers, ratchets, clutches, all sorts of things, springs. So... The scale is is monumental, The, the, the logical conception is monumental because it incorporates most of the modern principles. Its internal architecture reflects the internal architecture that has dominated electronic computing since 1945, the von Neumann architecture. It has a complete range of internal functions that you would associate with modern computing.
1: The story we've heard so
3: far seems to lead to an inevitable
1: conclusion, that Charles Babbage is the father of modern computing, and that Ada Lovelace deserves a seat beside him in the history books. But after the break, we'll hear why this view may, sadly, be prone to a system error and to crash.
0: Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero, from a local business Computers are
1: everywhere today, and Charles Babbage invented a machine to compute numbers in the 19th century. But what place does he actually take in the family tree that leads from that period to today's laptops, iPads, and mobile phones? I don't know about Acharya, is a science journalist and the author of a biography of John von Neumann, the 20th-century polymath who established the conceptual underpinnings of the modern electronic computer. He notes that there is a fundamental problem with the idea of Babbage as the
5: pioneer here. Babbage did invent the modern computer, it's just he didn't build it and nobody knew about it. So it was a startling intellectual accomplishment, but in terms of its actual material impact, there was none. However, there are some rather more roundabout links. And they run through an invention called the Jacquard loom and the work of the mathematical genius that I wrote about. It was called John von Neumann.
1: What role does this textile manufacturing tool play in the history of computing?
5: The Jacquard loom was invented in 1804 by this Frenchman, Joseph-Marie Jacquard. And before it came along, weaving was this incredibly complex manual process. So what Jacquard did was design this attachment that automated the whole process. And when his device was fitted to a loom, the whole design could be woven by feeding in a chain of punched cards, and each row of holes in a card would correspond to a row of the design. So suddenly it was possible to make these amazingly complex designs in like very little time and so much more cheaply than it was before. Now, we know that Jacquard had a huge impact on, on Babbage. Babbage even kept this framed portrait of Jacquard, which is made from a sheet of woven silk, and he showed this off to eminent visitors. How
1: do punch cards go from being something that is used to process first data when it comes to textile weaving to the modern computer.
5: Well, here is another person who was influenced by the Jacquard Loom, and he was the Hungarian genius, John von Neumann. Now, von Neumann was this remarkable figure from the early mid-20th century, and he would make key contributions to some of the 20th century's most important discoveries from quantum theory to the invention of game theory to the nuclear bomb So von Neumann had encountered Jacquard looms when he was a boy in Budapest through his father, Max. And Max was an investment banker, and he brought home a part of the loom mechanism after he invested in a Hungarian textile company.
1: So von Neumann gets a mechanical part from the loom that his father invested in. And from that, he's inspired to develop the electronic computer. Explain that a bit more.
5: Yeah, so it's more complicated than that. He couldn't have been more than seven or eight, but, you know, at eight... But he's a genius. But he's a genius, and at eight, this is a boy who can do calculus, and he's going to be writing his first major mathematical papers as a teenager. So he moved to America in 1930, and uh, he becomes one of the first to be hired at this new elite institute for advanced study in Princeton, along with Einstein. Now, during the war, he gets invited to join the top-secret atom bomb project, and he helps design the Fat Man bomb. And after the war, he starts scouring the United States, looking for computing power, for for calculating power. And almost by coincidence, he comes across the ENIAC. Now, the ENIAC is this essentially room-filling... Early electronic computer. And it's designed solely to do one thing, and that is calculate the trajectories of projectiles and compile these into sort of tables. And within a year of joining the project, he came up with this design. And that is really the blueprint of the modern stored program computer. So you could feed in a new computer program and it would carry out that program. And suddenly, you had the dawn of what is now the modern computer, this flexible device that we all carry around in our pockets.
1: Now, today, when we think of computing, we refer to the basic architecture as the von Neumann architecture of computing. How does that differ from what Charles Babbage had come up with?
5: Well, and here's the connection. I mean, Charles Babbage's design was indeed a stored program computer. It had a memory And you could feed in programs and uh, it would execute them. This is indeed what Babbage had envisaged but never built all those years ago. And it would take another genius to sort of rediscover this idea with no direct help from Babbage's designs, which only, I think in the 1970s, were discovered to be this prototype of a stored program computer.
1: Now I have to ask... How different would the field of computer science be if Babbage's work hadn't been lost from view?
5: Now that is a fascinating question because we know that Babbage's primary influence is nowadays through science fiction. And so you look at the steampunk works of William Gibson and others and you can have some idea of what the world might have looked like had his ideas not been lost.
1: So Babbage was brilliant, but not the modern computer's inventor. Yet he conceptualized the different elements that a computing machine would need. To understand how digital computers compare to mechanical ones, and to get a sense of the future of computing that Babbage could scarcely imagine, I turned to Tim Cross, the economist technology editor. I began by asking him to explain what computer scientists call the von Neumann architecture, not the Babbage architecture.
6: The von Neumann architecture is basically a way of sort of designing a computer at a very high level. And what it essentially says is, we will have a device that sits over here that does all the actual computing and crunches all the numbers. And then all the numbers that it crunches and all the instructions on how we want them crunched, they live in a separate device, which is over here. And there is a connection between these two things called a bus. And so data and instructions go from the memory... They go along the bus to the processor, the processor does stuff to them and sends the results back to the memory, and then it fetches some more and round and round we go.
1: And 75 years on, this is still the architecture that underpins modern computing. But is it holding us back?
6: I think it's one of the things that's holding computing back. So one of the problems you have is if you have these like two devices that have to talk to each other and they have to talk to each other across a bus that introduces a delay so that the CPU wants to do something, it has to say, hey, memory, I need some instructions and I need some data. And it takes time. It takes measurable amounts of time for that message to get to the memory, for the memory to find what it wants and to, to ping it back to the CPU. And it also uses, uses energy uh, to do that. So when you're designing a modern computer and you're, or you're designing a program to run on it, one of the things you want to avoid at all costs, you want to minimize how often the main processor has to talk to memory because then everything stops while it does that. You can have you know, hundreds and hundreds of processor cycles go by essentially idle while you're waiting for the information to come back. And so you aren't getting everything that you could get out of the chip.
1: So how can these issues be solved? What is the future of computer design?
6: So in the short term, there are all kinds of clever tricks you can do. So you can put small chunks of memory on your processor. We already have these. They're called caches. They're very fast. They, they're special memory that lives on the processor instead of over here on the other side of the bus. They're expensive, so you can't make them too big. But that's one thing that we can and have been doing. I think in the longer term, if we're looking like you know 50 or 100 years out, you could start to see much bigger changes. So one idea... It's called neuromorphic computing, which basically means try and build chips that look a bit like brains. Um, so Intel just released its most recent version of something called Luigi, which is its, its neuromorphic chip. And one of the things that a lot of these chips have in common is they split the computing up, as it were, into a bunch of little silicon devices that behave a bit like biological neurons do. And very often those devices have a little bit of memory like attached right to them. You kind of mix the memory and computing stuff together. You do the the computing in memory, or you have your memory right next to your compute and so on. Another thing that we might see is, again, sort of other ways to kind of avoid the problem and get speed ups from elsewhere. So the the sort of biggest looming change in in computing, I think, is probably quantum computing. And that uses the sort of weirdness of quantum mechanics to let you do all kinds of maths that you couldn't do on a non-quantum computer, very, very quickly. So you don't necessarily get around any of these problems, but you you, um, improve your machine's abilities uh, in other ways.
1: Now, what kind of applications will these new sorts of computers be used for?
6: I mean, the inspiration for these things is the brain, right, which does not work like a von Neumann computer. And you can do all kinds of cool pattern recognition tasks. We get quite impressed with the state of sort of modern um, AI systems, but they all run on von Neumann chips, ultimately. And if you look at the energy consumption that they have, you know, you need tens of kilowatts of energy to, or more than that, to train these things and quite a lot to power them as well. The brain uses about 25 watts. It doesn't need any external cooling. It's very adaptable and plastic and all that kind of thing. And we'd like to have some of those properties in in, in our machines. I think one interesting question though is how far can we really push the von Neumann architecture? Because there are all kinds of ideas out there for sort of exotic alternatives to computers that have been kicking around since von Neumann's time and have, have come up since then. And you'll know, Ken, there's, every couple of years, someone says, right, we finally hit some limit now. We're going to have to think of things differently. And then it turns out that we haven't quite hit a limit and that here's this clever idea that lets us bypass it.
1: My final question for you, Tim, it's an unfair one, the crystal ball question. How different will computers look in 150 years?
6: If it's an unfair question, I'll give you an unfair answer. I don't know, except to say that they will look the same as modern computers look compared to computers 20 years ago. They'll be smaller, they'll be faster, and they'll use less energy and they'll be better in basically every way.
1: The story of Charles Babbage has many facets. One is the value of collaborators. Ada Lovelace played a useful role in translating his invention so people could understand it. But there are crucial lessons that all innovators can learn from. First is keeping a team together. Babbage was easily angered, and he lost his prized draftsman, who turned his designs into a practical machine. Second, he burned his investors, in this case, the British government, by taking their dosh but not delivering. In this way, he may have held back the technology. But the biggest lesson of all is not to make the best the enemy of the good. Like many technology entrepreneurs today, Babbage never shipped his product because he was always trying to add improvements. He couldn't settle on a version 1.0 or an MVP, a minimal viable product. But we can respect the man and the woman whose intellect and imagination saw far beyond their own day. Now the question we on The Economist podcasting team wrestle with is whether we should still call the show Babbage. We've debated this internally for years. Tell us what you think, and if you have an idea for another name, email us at podcasts at To enjoy more of our journalism, go to economist.com slash podcast offer for the best introductory offer on a new subscription. The link is in the show notes. Thank you for listening to Babbage. And special thanks to our contributors today: Tim Cross, Anna Novaltacharia, Doran Swade, Patricia Farah, and Rachel Boone. The producers are Pete Naughton, Jason Hoskin, and Abby Soye Oshindiro. The sound engineer is Nico Rofast, and the executive producer is Sandra Schmuele. I'm Kenneth Couquier, and in London, this is The Economist.
0: Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation,